And one of the things the Lord has been doing in my life is that he, I mean, I tell you, I know I've told you this often lately, but I read of pastors who go through burnout. I want you to know I am not going through burnout. And as a matter of fact, the last five years of my spiritual life, my walking with Jesus have been some of the most exciting years of my life. And so I feel more alive today than maybe I have in, for a number of years, spiritually speaking. Um, but one of the things that God is showing me that I want to share with you all and just encourage you with is this. I, I think for the longest time, I got caught up in, in seeing my Christian life all about helping people have eternal life with me off in heaven someday, some, in heaven someday. And I want you to know that that has not diminished in my heart. I mean, that is still, that is still my heart's desire to see people spend eternity with me and Anne and all of you that know Jesus. I, I mean, I'm just looking forward to us spending eternity together in, uh, in all that God has prepared for us. But one of the things that God's been doing in my life is, is he's been bringing me back to his first commission. You know what his first commission was? His first commission is found in Genesis. We've gone back to the beginning of our study in the book of the Bible, right? And in Genesis, he told Adam and Eve, he said, go and, and rule over the world. Go over and make it a great place. Go, go over there and make it right. And of course, then sin comes in and corrupts everything and messes everything up. So, so now a part of our commission is we're to subdue the earth, but we're also to, to make right all that sin makes wrong. I mean, I have a responsibility. So Jesus taught us to pray, and he said, pray like this. Pray that, um, that the will of God might be done where? On earth as it is in heaven, right? Pray for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you read your Bibles, you will discover that from beginning to end, God is calling you and me to be men and women of justice and righteousness, of kindness and goodness, of, of this love that ought to permeate who we are. I mean, we, we are to be the light of the world of how God desires it to be. Now, we're just as fallen as everybody else. We're just as broken. We're just as corrupt. However, Jesus makes us new, and he begins to change things in us. And as he's changing things in me, he's basically saying, Jimmy, go and change the world. Let me live through you. Let, let, let the difference that I'm going to make in your life affect the world around you. And I'm telling you, everybody, we, we need to be men and women of kindness and goodness and justice and righteousness. We need to be changing our world by what we say and what we do and how we act and what our attitudes are. I mean, people need, we're, we're, we're supposed to be what Israel was supposed to be and that we are God's people now to the world telling them there is a God who loves them and who who this is not what he desired in the beginning. We corrupted, by, corrupted it with our own rebellion. He's going to make it all new. He's going to fix it all. In the meantime, hey, let, let's, let's see if we can't change it. Last week I shared, or a couple weeks ago, I shared with you uh, the Dare to Share video about how to share the gospel. And, and so I want to just tell you, your pastor tries. My wife says, nobody shares the gospel more than me. That is simply not true. And that's not you the one that says that? No, no, I know. You mean me. And, but I know my own heart, and I know how rarely I share the gospel. And I'm telling you, if I'm, if I'm the best example of that, the church is in a pitiful state. It really is. Because I don't share the gospel like I want to, like I believe I should, like I believe matters. 
But I want to tell you about last night. So last night I'm ordering windows for my house because they've all rotted out and I've got to change them. Then I got to spend probably 35, 40 minutes with a fellow by the name of Jamie. And you know, and, and, and I owned all the mistakes that he made. Of course, I made most of the mistakes. I just kept on owning them all, right? Hey, when we, when we typed in the wrong thing, you know, I owned the mistake, etc. And uh, long story short, we'd finished ordering the windows and I said to him, Jamie, let me ask you, man, do you, you know, what's, what's your thoughts on God? I mean, just that blood, just that start, just that whatever. You know, that, that gave us about a five to ten minute conversation where I got to tell him about, about the Lord Jesus. I got to tell him about, you know, and, and listen, the man already said he believed in God, right? So that's a great start. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because you have to believe that he exists. All right, if you don't believe that God exists, then you're never going to please him, okay? That doesn't end there. The verse goes on and says, and, and, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I quoted that verse to him, and, and at the end of our conversation, I was able to say to Jamie, Jamie, listen, I really want to encourage, I never told him I was a pastor, he never knew that's what I did for my living. Uh, I said, listen, let me just encourage you, seek the Lord with all your heart, because that's the only way to please him, is to seek him. Believe that he exists and seek him. If you seek him, you're going to find him and, and you're going to, you're going to, he's going to change your life. So anyway, I really want to urge us. I prayed about it this morning. I, I'm praying about it often in my, in my heart. I want us, I want Jimmy to be a light set up on a hill. I, I, want, I don't want to hide my light under a bushel. I want Bacon's Castle, the family, to be a light that's set on a hill. And, and let me tell you what that light looks like. It's not just that we're telling people how to escape death and live forever. Yes, but it's we're telling people how to know this incredible creator who loves us and who wants a relationship with us and who wants to change our lives now for good and for, and for better as we know him. And, and I want us to be a light set on a hill that people will say, oh, you mean that church that's so kind down there? You mean that church that really helps helps us, helps people in our community. You mean that church down there that, boy, when it comes to giving of themselves and their resources and their time, you mean that church? That's, that's the kind of people I want Surrey and Hollowhite County to know us as. Don't you want that? Pray with me. God, would you make that so? And Lord, we know, I, I know, Lord, I believe that I have utmost responsibility in making that happen. But I also believe, Lord, that I'm fallen and I'm flawed and, and I so desperately need your help to help me and help us be what you want us to be. And so, Lord, we're not asking for this as, as something we can accomplish without the grace and your goodness at work in our heart. We're, just, we're saying to you, Father, we want to be submitted to you as a family. We, as your sons and daughters, we want to walk in truth and we want to walk filled with your spirit and just being the kind of church that changes the world. So God, would you do that in and through us? Would you help us with that, Lord? And, and I know you're not going to force it. You're not, you're not gonna, you, we're not, we have responsibility in this, but we need you. We look to you to help us be that kind of church, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of John, to the gospel of John, and um, we're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. And today I'm going to start a series of six messages over the next, uh, next few weeks, next six weeks, uh, which I'm calling the hard sayings of Jesus, I'm calling the hard sayings of Jesus. 
Now, F.F. Bruce, back in 1983, he was a British evangelical scholar, and he wrote a very famous book now called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. <laughs> he popularized the title. However, people have been grappling with the hard sayings of Jesus since Jesus uttered them. And after a discussion that Jesus has with some people in John chapter 6, some of the people who had been following him up until this point, at this point, they say, these are really, this is a difficult saying. I don't think I can listen to it anymore. And then at the end of that, it says that a number of men, and I'm assuming women that followed Jesus, stopped following him at the end of this conversation that we're going to look at this morning. And, and from there, F.F. From there, Bruce got the title, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, that, uh, that we're using as a title for, for this six week message series uh, on this very issue. Now, what we're going to do for the next three weeks, I'm going to talk about three sayings that are kind of hard to understand. And then the final three weeks, we're going to talk about three statements that are hard to actually live out. Okay, not that, not that any of these are necessarily easy to live out apart from the working of God in our lives and helping us, but, but there's the last three, I'm going to pick three that are very hard for us to, to live out. Now, at the end of the discourse that we're going to look at this morning, a number of men and women leave Jesus, and they don't follow him anymore. They say, you're, you're too weird. Your sayings are too weird. What you're asking for is too strange. We're, we're not going to follow you anymore. But Jesus turns to the 12 that he's hand-chosen, and he says to them, are you also going to leave me now? And you remember Peter, who is always, you know, always quick to speak. He speaks first, and he says, where would we go? Who has the words of eternal life that you have? In other words, what Peter is saying is we've seen too much. We know too much. You, you alone have the words that we need to hear. That's what he's saying. So with that, kind of, uh, with that kind of backdrop, let's look at this hard saying of Jesus. It's from John chapter 6, and we're going to jump down to verse 53 through verse 56. And here, here's the hard saying of Jesus. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now imagine just for a moment that this is the first time you've ever been in a church, first thing you ever know about Jesus, and I'm reading this to you. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh, eat, eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, so confusing was the statement and so lingering that it's probably responsible for the charges that the early church incurred that said we were cannibals, that, that the early Christians practiced a ritual of cannibalism. I mean, so numerous were the charges against us that that's what we did, that second century Christians, that would be the year 100 to year 200, a number of our apologetic writers back in those early years of the church, they felt constrained to refute this charge against us. Justin Martyr in 150 AD in, the, in, the, in Palestine, 
Palestine was one of the first writers to basically address this charge against us. Tertullian, a few years later in North Africa, did the same by using extreme exaggeration in, in his comments. To, he was mocking this claim that people made against us. In the late second century, there is a document called the Octavius of Minicius Felix, and it describes a debate between a Christian and a pagan at the time, and the pagan says this, and I quote, you Christians are the worst breed ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment you can get. Nobody's like you. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are all cannibals. You eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. Octavius, the Christian who in the story responds, says, that story is probably based on reports that we share together a meal of the body and blood of Christ. That we do. But it is not human flesh we eat. It is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate our Lord's death. So it's obvious that this response that Jesus gave that day and the response that he gets from the men and women listening and, and from the lingering accusation maybe almost 200 years later, 170 years after this, lets us know that this was a very hard statement for people to understand. So let's set the context as we're going to work our way through the text in just a few moments, but let's set the context for this saying. At the beginning of chapter 6 of John, we find that Jesus feeds 5,000 men. Some estimate the crowd may have been as big as 15,000 people. So there's this huge crowd of people. It's getting late in the evening. Jesus has been teaching them all day. They have no food. Jesus says, feed them. His disciples said, how in the world can we do that? Jesus takes uh, two fish and five loaves, breaks it, gives it out, and feeds everyone with 12 baskets left over after he's finished. They dismiss everyone. People don't necessarily go home, but the disciples get in a boat, if you remember the story, and they begin to cross the Sea of Galilee back over to the Israelite side, to Capernaum. They found themselves on the, on the eastern shore over in Jordan on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so, uh, or Saudi Arabia now, I'm not sure which it is. But they, they find themselves on that shore. They cross over. Jesus stays behind. He goes up on a mountain to pray. Everybody knows that. They've seen it. How they leave him alone, I don't know. But he goes off. He prays. You remember in the middle of the night, he walks across the water. He meets them at night. They see him somehow, and they're afraid. Peter walks on water. Remember the story? They get to the other side, and, and so there they are. They're on the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in the morning, the crowds look for Jesus, because remember, he didn't get in the boat with the disciples. They look for him, but they can't find him. And there was evidently one boat left there. It's still there. They can't figure it out. They get in their boats, or they, however they do it, they go across the Sea of Galilee, and, and they look for Jesus, and they find him. And their first question to him in Capernaum, and we'll find out later that I evidently Either this whole discourse that we're going to look at takes place in the synagogue or it starts outside the synagogue and ends in the synagogue. But their first question is, when did you get here? You know, we, we saw your disciples leave, but we didn't see you leave. When, when did you get here? Now, if you have your Bibles, and listen, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the shelves either side, there's some in the back. You really probably want to have a Bible today so that you can follow along. But in verse 26... Verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
So Jesus doesn't even bother to answer their question about how he got there or when he got there. He says, the reason you're seeking me today is not because of what you saw yesterday. And by faith, you understand who I am. That's not why you're seeking me. You're not seeking me because you know me to be God. You're not seeking me because you know me to be the Messiah. You're seeking me because I fed you. You're seeking me because you want the food. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you're not seeking, you didn't seek me for, you're not seeking me for the right reason. You came here. You don't understand who I am. You're here because you want another free meal. In fact, you kind of want free meals all the time. And in my notes, I have this question for us, and this is just kind of like a cursory sort of note for you, but here's my question. Why do you seek God? I'm telling you, there's so many people out there that are seeking God or seeking Jesus, not because of who Jesus is, not because they want a relationship with the eternal creator who loves them and died for them and and who's created them and wants them to be a part of him. It's it's not because of that. You're seeking God. They're seeking God because of what they can get out of it. There's online. So many preachers online that you can listen to, and, and really, it's just all about you getting mink coats and better cars and bigger houses and all that kind of stuff. And, and I just want to tell you, Jesus is really challenging. Why are you seeking me? Are you seeking me for what you can get from me? Or are you here because you really understand who I am? And, and his, his answer, as you'll see, is you, you do not know who I am. And he's in essence saying, you know, I am not a wholesale food distributor and I do not care to be the chairman of your lunch committee. I I am here because I have something to offer you that is so much more valuable than just bread and food and sandwiches. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal." Now, it's obvious that Jesus isn't telling them, hey, go be lazy, don't work for a living, don't worry about making money to to pay for food or anything. He's not advocating laziness, everyone. But what he is advocating is don't make food and don't make work, don't don't make your existence here in this world the the primal thing. Don't don't make it the main thing you seek is is what he's saying to them. He's saying make what's really matters Make what really matters the focus of your life, the the work for the food or satisfaction that he endures to eternal life. That's what he says. Verse 28, therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Now, at some level, verse 28 tells us that they're tracking with Jesus a little bit, that he's not necessarily talking about physical food, although in the back of their mind, they're never going to leave that, okay? It's always going to be about physical food. But but in verse 28, they're they're understanding that Jesus is pointing them past bread to something more than that. And they they ask, what is this work of God that that we should do? And and in essence, they're asking, what is this work of God that we should do so that you will continually give us bread to eat, all right? Verse 29, Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in in him whom he has sent. Now, Jesus' answer is crystal clear. It's precise. The work of God is faith. The work of God has always been faith, righteousness that comes from God, that makes us right, despite the fact that we are all liars and cheats and selfish. And, and you know, if we go through the litany of sins, you've probably all committed them, at least in your heart. 
Okay, so the, how does a righteous, unrighteous man like me and you, or an unrighteous woman like you, or one of your sisters, or one of the ladies sitting near you, how do you become righteous? Well, the work of God is by faith. The righteousness that is from God comes to us by faith. In other words, it's not, it's not based on or accomplished by what I do, but rather it was accomplished by what Jesus did, and it is applied to the life of an Old Testament person, or it's applied to the life of a New Testament person in the very same way. It's because we're willing to believe what God says. It's because we're willing to put our faith in God and take him at his word. So Jesus says to them, listen, the work of God is not something you do. It is that you are willing to take God at his word and you are willing to believe him. And if you have faith, that is the work of God. I find their next question hard to fathom. You will too, I, I imagine. Verse 30. They said to Jesus, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now this is one day, less than 24 hours after Jesus took two fish and five small loaves of bread and fed Thousands of people with leftover food, and they're asking, give us a sign. Give us a sign that, that what you say is true and, and that you really have the right to say what you're saying. And, and I want to say sign? What, what, what sign do you need more than that? And, and, and if you notice this, if you, don't, if you don't catch it, let me point it out. Verse 31, give us a sign. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is written, he gave them bread out of heaven uh, to eat. So here it is, hint, hint, Moses gave us manna to eat every day. What sign are you going to give? Hint, hint, we want bread every day. Now, verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. Let me correct you guys. It's not Moses that gave you the manna. Look what he says. But it was my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Well, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. It's God the Father who gave you the bread. And now he's giving you the true bread from heaven that will give you eternal life. And they're like, oh, Lord, give us this bread. How often? Look at it. What does it say? Give us this bread. How often? Give us this bread every day, Lord. Be, be like manna. Be, give us the bread. Now, in, in all fairness to them, you don't understand I don't understand. I, we're not subsistently living day to day. You know, 80% of the world up until, I don't remember, was it was 1800s or whatever, 80% of the world was subsistently living. What that means is every day they're wondering, where is my bread going to come from to live today? Where am I going to get food from today? So when these people say, when these people saw Jesus give them bread and they didn't have to scrounge for it and they didn't have to go and, and just try to find a way to make food for the day, that was huge. Can you see that? And so when, when they're saying, give us bread, life was hard. And they were, I mean, they couldn't go down to the food lion. They didn't have social services nets to help them just get bread and, and all kinds of junk food to eat. They just didn't have it. 
This meant a lot to them. I, I understand why. I understand why they're asking, but they're missing the whole point because all they can focus on is the temporal bread of, that, that sustains their bodies. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, this bread you're looking for, I am it. I am it. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus clearly asserts to his listeners, and he's telling us precisely this morning that he is this bread that he's talking about. It's not manna. It's not not a physical bread. He is the bread that he's talking about, and he is the bread of life, and that coming to him, you won't hunger anymore. Now, notice this, Jesus expands his metaphor, and he also says, and you won't be thirsty anymore. Now, now this, doesn't it bring back John chapter 4, for those of you that know your Bibles, remember John chapter 4? Jesus and his disciples are traveling through the land of Samaria. They're hungry. They leave Jesus out by a well outside the city. They run into the city to get food. There's a woman who comes to the well. Jesus says, give me water. And she says, how is it you're a Jew asking a Samaritan for water? And he said to her, if you only knew, if you only knew who I was, you'd ask me for water and I'd give you water that springs up out of you and brings springs up to eternal life. <laughs> I love that. And that's what Jesus is saying here when he adds that water issue to the metaphor. He's saying, hey, listen, come to me, come to me, believe in me and by faith in me, and God is going to satisfy you with, satisfy your hunger and satisfy your thirst. But he's not talking about, he's not talking about the physical need for water and the physical need for food. In verse 37, Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me and I'll cast none away. The Father gives everyone to Jesus who comes to him in faith. Whether it's Abraham or Moses or King David in the Old Testament, whether it's anyone in between, whether it's anyone listening to my voice today or anyone in the days to come, anyone who comes to the Father in faith, he gives to Jesus and Jesus takes away their sin. Jesus atones for their sin. And Jesus says, I will cast none of them away. I'll cast none of them away. In verse 39 and 40, Jesus says that he'll lose none who come to him in faith, and he will raise them up in the resurrection and give them eternal life. His exact words are this, everyone who beholds the Son, he's talking about in faith, and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, you know, I, I say this often now, and I have a point, and again, I'm not trying to push things on you, but I am trying to reorient our thinking. And our thinking that I want to reorient is this, that the hope of every New Testament writer is always the resurrection. 
It's always the last day. It's always the return of Christ. It's always when God resurrects us from the dead and gives to us eternal life. And if you would just start looking for it, you'd see it because it's all throughout the New Testament. What I mean by that is the focus of Jesus isn't, the focus of the Bible is never on the intermediate state between when you die and when he comes back. Now, again, I'm not trying to say anything about the intermediate state. I simply want you to see that the hope of every New Testament writer is always what Jesus says here. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And that is the focus. In verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And that statement above everyone stuck in the, in the craw of, of his listeners. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Now, the tide is changing. Before the tide has been running in towards Jesus. Oh, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. The tide changes at this point, and the tide begins to recede and begins to turn away from Jesus. They came excited, but now they're not excited anymore. They're grumbling. They're complaining against Jesus. We know this guy. We know his parents. Hey, listen, isn't this the young man that was raised in the house of Joseph who's been a carpenter for 30 years? How does he dare say he came from heaven? What what in the world does that mean? But Jesus doesn't let up. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, Jesus doesn't let up on their grumbling. He goes right back at them again. In the passage that I just quoted you, and most specifically verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, has two widely divergent understandings. I'd like to share them with you. First, one, one understanding of verse 44 is this. Some people believe that it means that from all eternity, God has chosen... God has chosen unconditionally the people that he desires to come to Jesus. And those he chooses comes, and those he doesn't choose do not come. That's one understanding. So when Jesus says, no one can, don't grumble amongst yourselves, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, what that understanding means is this, don't grumble because you have not been chosen, and that is the reason why you are not coming because you have not been chosen by the Father. That's one way of understanding it. Here is another way of understanding that verse. They're a little bit different than that way. And this way of understanding means simply this, that at this time, God is only drawing the Jews who had put their faith in God to also put their faith in Jesus. So the ones that the Father is drawing are the ones who have put their faith in God. And, and so now God the Father is drawing them to put their faith in Jesus 
With the others, that is the Jews who had rejected God prior to this, God was hiding the identity of Jesus. And so what we find is much like we see in the Old Testament, where when God is freeing his people from Israel, I mean, excuse me, from Egypt, he sends plagues. And in the first half a dozen plagues, first, excuse me, first five plagues, we, we find that it says that Pharaoh hardens his heart, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. But by the time we get to plague five or six, the Bible changes, and it says, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. No, and guess what? God is judiciously, judiciously judging, or I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but as judge, God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And what, what I believe this passage, and by the way, I subscribe to the second understanding of the passage, what, what I believe that Jesus is saying here is that God is only drawing the Jews who had put their faith in him to Jesus, and the others, he is purposely hardening their hearts. He's purposely hiding himself from them. And so what we find is throughout the New Testament, things like this, Mark 9, just listen, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. In Matthew 16, verse 20, he says, Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Mark 3, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. In Mark chapter 4, the secret of the kingdom, Jesus speaking here, he says, The secret of the kingdom has been given to you. But to those who on the outside, everything is spoken in parables so that, and he quotes Isaiah, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. So in John chapter 6, what I believe Jesus is saying to his listeners is, don't grumble, God is hardening your hearts because you have been in your unbelief all along, and this is God's judgment on you. In John chapter 12, and just a few chapters after this, Matt, Matt read this earlier this morning, I want you to have the whole context, but in John chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and he says this, and if I be lifted up from the earth... I will draw all men to myself. In the future, Jesus is going to die on a cross. He's going to be lifted up from the earth. And Jesus said, at that time, I'm going to begin to draw all men to myself. The context of John chapter 12, John goes on and he says this, and I quote, Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And this is fulfilled to fulfill what Isaiah said Again, John chapter 12, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and he's hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted and I heal them. God is intentionally and judicially not drawing all men so that their judgment would be certain. Now, let me draw one of those, those side tangent notes that I did earlier in this text. And here's what I'd say to you, be careful. Be careful lest you harden your heart and you harden your heart and you harden your heart. And there comes a day when God says, all right, I'm going to harden your heart. And if God chooses to harden your heart, you'll, you'll never come in faith and you'll be lost. He then reiterates 
In John chapter 6, Jesus is only drawing, Jesus says God is only drawing those who have already put their faith in Jehovah, that is in God. Verse 45, John 6, 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So everyone who's put their faith, all these faithful Jews who had loved the Father, who were following the covenant, who were God's men and women. I mean, when the Father drew them to the Son, they came to the Lord Jesus. Then Jesus continues in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. I tell you, I just, I do not understand the listeners. I, do they not have metaphors in the days of Jesus? You know, I think they must have had metaphors. We find them all throughout the New Testament, so they must have had metaphors. But for whatever reason, and I think it goes back to God blinding them and judicially hardening them, but they don't get the metaphor. And they continue in their wooden literalism. They don't get it, but Jesus contrasts himself to the manna of the Old Testament. And he says, the manna they ate and they died. He said, but if you eat of this bread, you shall live forever. Now, again, Jesus is not talking physical bread here. He's talking himself. He's talking his life, right? And he says, but if you eat this bread that is me, you shall have life and you shall have it forever. It reminds me of John 11, verse... uh, yeah, I don't remember the verse, 40-something, but Jesus is meeting with Martha, and, and, and he says, and she says, man, if you'd been here, Lazarus would have not died. You would have healed, and he would be alive. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, oh, I know, I know he'll rise again at the final day. I know that. And Jesus said this, I am the resurrection, and though, yet, though we die, yet shall we live, and he who lives shall never die. Here's what Jesus is saying. We're going to die physically. It's appointed for every one of you to die. I know you know this. You don't really maybe know it consciously, but you know it. You're going to die. You will not make it past. You will not make it. You won't live forever. You're going to die. Why? Because that's the punishment of sin. It's what you deserve because you're a sinner. It's, what you, it's the penalty of sin. It's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. Yes, but does that have to be the end of us? No, it doesn't. Jesus proved that. Jesus died that same physical death, we're going to die, and then he rose again to never die again. That can be us. We can rise to never die again. That's what Jesus means. If you eat the bread of life, which is me, though you're going to die, yet shall you live and you shall not die again. Verse 52, when the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man eat his flesh? How can he give us his flesh to eat? And again, there's that same wooden literalism. They cannot, they don't see the metaphor, but the metaphor is just as clear as can be, isn't it? They don't see the metaphor. And they say, how can Jesus give us his body to eat and to drink his blood? Undeterred, maybe more resolute in shaking them up. He continues with now those infamous words. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. In other words, instead of saying to them, hey, guys, it's just a metaphor. I'm just, I'm I'm metaphorically speaking. He doesn't do that, does he? It's like, it's almost like he takes the knife, if you would, and sticks it in and now twists it a little bit. 
Because he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. And this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live. Eats this bread, my flesh and blood. He will live forever. Man, you and I have the advantage of of thousands of years of hindsight, don't we? And thousands of years of teaching and thousands of years of understanding that Jesus wasn't literally advocating for us to commit cannibalism and eat his body and his blood. So what did he mean? What did he mean? How do you labor for food that endures for eternal life? How how do we eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, here are the clues. John chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me in faith shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. For the Lord Jesus... For the Lord Jesus, eating is believing, and drinking is believing. The promises of eternal life are for those who believe in him, those who put their faith in him, those who put their trust and their confidence in him. Now, believe what? What do you have to believe, all right? Here's what you have to believe. You have to believe that God sent Jesus from heaven and His death, that is the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood, pays in full the penalty for my sin and for your sin. It pays in a perfect way so that the perfect righteousness of God can then by faith be given to you in exchange for your unrighteousness. In other words, the righteousness of God, the forgiveness of God, The eternal life that God wants to give us all is not something I earned by being good. It's not something I earned by going to church or by doing the things I talked about earlier, about being loving and kind and all of those things. It is that we believe God. Without faith, it is impossible to to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, it's always been by faith. It's never been by what you do. It's always been because you are willing to believe God. Abraham heard the voice of God and he listened and he believed and he obeyed the voice. He he said, God, that's your voice. I believe it's true. And and he followed the voice of God. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God. Not Abraham left his family and did, I mean, left his parents and everything. And he he made this trek across this land and set up this stuff. And no, Abraham believed what God said. 
and God credited to him as righteousness. You see, Jesus died for Abraham. Man, if you get nothing this morning and you're a long-term follower of Jesus, I hope you get this. Abraham was saved by the death of Jesus. Jesus died for Abraham's sin. The book of Hebrews makes it really, really clear that God was overlooking our sin until the time when Jesus would die for it and pay for it. And, and, and Jesus' death was applied to Abraham's life and to Isaac's life and maybe to Esau's life and maybe to all the other sons of Abraham. It would have been applied to their life in the same way it's applied to your life. They believed God. And God credited the work of Jesus that was coming to their life. God forgives them on the basis of what Jesus would do for them years in the future, but he would apply it to their life by faith. It's always been by faith. And so Jesus, so, so what does it mean to eat the, eat the body of Jesus and to drink his blood? Jesus means you believe him. You believe him. You put your faith in him and exchange what God says, that the work of Jesus is sufficient to forgive your sin, all of it. Believing this is how we eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And, I, you know, we don't know how they said that. We don't know the tone of their voice. We don't know. But, but it seems pretty obvious that they're saying, this is so gross. This is so far out there. This is not anything I want to listen to anymore. And then in verse 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Here's a fundamental reality that I need you to take hold of before we dismiss this morning. And we're really near the end, so if, I could just, if you could just stay with me a couple more minutes. Um, here's a real, this is a fundamental truth. You need to grab this. To believe in Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, is to follow Jesus. To, to believe Jesus is to follow him. There is no such thing as believing in Jesus, but not following Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand. We stumble, we fall. There's seasons in our life where we're not following like we ought. Remember Peter? I mean, Peter stumbles, and instead of following Jesus, he denies Jesus, cursing. Remember that? So we all stumble and fall. So please don't misunderstand. But I'm telling you, there's no such thing as faith without faithfulness. There's no such thing as believing God and somehow it not changing my life. I mean, there's not. I know we want to believe it, and, and we as evangelicals, especially Baptist evangelicals, we, we have, you know, because it's by faith, it's because believing God is what God uses to credit to us the righteousness of Christ, because we've said that it's by faith and not efforts, we, we've somehow disassociated faith, with faith from faithfulness, and we've said, hey, you can have faith, but you can be just as just like the, you can, you can look just like everybody else. You can, it doesn't matter because faith doesn't have to affect your life. There's no such thing in your Bibles, none whatsoever. And I stand categorically by that. Please don't misunderstand. Faith is what makes us righteous. It's not, not the following, but faith that's true faith. Because what is faith? It's believing God, right? And it's following Jesus. There's no such thing as one without the other. 
And so these disciples who no longer could put their faith in Jesus, what did they do? They no longer followed. No longer followed. Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And again, here's Jesus, man, will not let up. Verse 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So I don't think he's talking about Judas there. I think he's talking about all kinds of them that are listening to his voice. He says, hey, the flesh, what you do in the flesh, even the following in the flesh, it profits nothing. It's not what God uses to grant to us the forgiveness of his, the, his forgiveness for our sins. It's not what he uses to credit to us righteousness, what I do. What, what he uses to credit to us righteousness is that we believe him, we take him at his word, and that we follow him. And Jesus says, my words now, if you could just hear them, my words are spirit and are life, and they're what will give you eternal life if you will just listen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.